We're going to pick up a passage in Galatians 3, uh, verses 10 to 14 this morning. I want us to read this passage first off and uh, to really give it careful um, consideration and attention this morning. Uh, This passage uh, for me when I was in seminary uh, was one of those passages that, that crystallized for me a lot of my understanding and thinking and uh, one of those places where you know when you're reading your bible and you're having your quiet time and all of a sudden you have what i call one of those aha moments this was one of those places and i've never forgotten it uh so let let us read galatians chapter three there there are bibles in your seats and uh, if you don't have your own then please pull one out galatians chapter three I tell you what page number it is, but mine won't match yours. So, um, at any rate, Galatians 3, verse 10 through 14. This is the inerrant, inspired, and infallible Word of God. Uh, and it is good for faith. In fact, you know what? I want us to stand as we read this this morning. Let us give careful attention to the Word. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let me pray. Father God, I pray this morning that that promised Holy Spirit would take your word and breathe life into our hearts and souls today. Oh Lord, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. This last week uh, was was a hard week for me in in some ways. Uh, I am the uh, moderator of our presbytery and our presbytery met uh, this week, and uh, we met down at St. Paul's, and we had a discipline case uh, that we um, brought to resolution. And we suspended a man from the office of uh, pastor for six months because of relational issues, not sexual immorality, not, not, um, not some, some hideous sin, well, maybe, actually, it is more hideous than we want to think. Relational issues. I, I, I will tell you this. He, he went, he, he, he was for many years unreconciled with many under his care. And it's just a tragic, it grieved my soul. Uh, I'm grieved for his church. I'm grieved for the glory of the gospel too. And just to be honest, um, it was a hard week for me because of that. Uh, My heart's been heavy because unreconciled relationships are a source of great 
agony and, and disappointment with me. You know, as we think about it honestly with ourselves, if we think about, about who we are and, and how we relate to other people and to one another, um, we, we've got to acknowledge that unresolved relationships are a plague to all of us. You know how it is, husband and wife. And, and maybe it's not a big thing. Maybe it's just a small thing that, that comes up in your marriage and in your relationship, but all of a sudden it's kind of like a, a burr under your saddle. It's like, it's like having a sand spur in your foot. It just doesn't go away, and you, you tolerate it for a little while, and it annoys you, and then you get cold and distant, and the relationship struggles. Nearly every aspect of our lives involves relating to people. Even a hermit like Mick Dodge, you know who Mick Dodge is? The legend of Mick Dodge. Did any of you guys see that show? Even a hermit can't live on his own. He can't live completely self-reliant. Mick Dodge, uh, they filmed the guy. Okay, you know if they're filming, he's not alone, number one. So there's a you know, suspension of disbelief. But at any rate, even a real live hermit has to depend on others. You know, what happens when, when you, you crack a tooth? What happens when you, you have a, a physical need that needs to be met? You have to live in, in relationships with, with other people, periodically at least, to sustain life. Mick Dodge, no doubt, uh, uh, wrestles endlessly with memories and with um, just uh, the very fact that he's retreating from life is, is probably an attempt to avoid uh, personal history and relational pain. I was reminded this week as I was studying of um, Emily Dickinson, uh, 19th century poet. Uh, she was a recluse. You know, you know some of Emily Dickinson's poems and things. They often express joy about art and about nature, about imagination, about relationships and those kinds of things. But they're also permeated with struggle and, and uh, to, to evade... Um, a struggle to face and grasp meaning out of suffering and that kind of thing. She wrote a poem. It's called uh, A Loss of Something Ever Felt I. And in that poem, she describes the deprivation that, that she felt uh, from her childhood. And, and she talks about forgiving those who caused that pain in her life. And she recognizes in the final stanza of her poem, uh, she recognizes that her highest expectations will only be met in heaven. Let me just read the last uh, four, uh, uh, five lines of her poem for you. She's, she's, she's come all the way through remembering all those struggles and all that pain, and then she says, and I'm going to try to read it as, as she's written it, and a suspicion like a finger torches, or I'm sorry, touches my forehead now and then that I am looking oppositely for the sight of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it's like a finger to the forehead. She's reminded that she's not going to see what she wants resolved in this life. I thought that was just an interesting insight. Uh, I picked that up from somewhere I read. I thought it was really good, but here's the point. To be human is to be relational. It is to be in a relationship. 
Everyone is in relationship, mothers and fathers, children, parents, all kinds of relationships. It is our blessing and it is our curse, isn't it? I mean, let's just be real. Sometimes living in relationship is painful. It rubs against us. We all harbor a deep desire for peaceful palaces where we only know favor and acceptance of our friends and our spouses and our children and our parents and our colleagues and even strangers, but we're kind of like Emily Dickinson. We realize that that is not going to happen until heaven. We may as well get ready to recognize that fact. Relationships. We're so often met with disappointment and this world is not heaven yet. There's more to come. Galatians chapter 3 speaks a little bit to that, I think, this morning. I think our, our disappointment in relationship provokes kind of a deep perversity in us. It, it's, it's when the desire for true relational intimacy is, is thwarted. Sometimes we're so disenchanted that we sabotage what's left. We blow it up. We mess it up some way or another. We throw ourselves into a feverish activity. Uh, we attempt to secure somebody else's favor, even trying to secure God's favor. And that's what Paul's addressing here. The people in Galatia were trying to secure God's favor. They were kind of like the, the husband after he's had a little um, struggle with his wife, you know, the old cliche after the domestic spat, what does the husband always do? He brings home flowers. What does the wife do? Well, she bakes a pie. What does your child do when your child brings home the report card and it's not what it should have been? I promise I'll knuckle down. I'll do my work. I'll work harder. It's, 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 it's something that we, we all do. We think, after all, if we can get it right with God then we can get it right everywhere. By doing right, I can be right, becomes our relational motto, if you will. It's something that's bred in us from childhood. It's something that, that is a part of, of all of our lives that, that we're dependent on, on atoning for our actions. We make the logical jump. Being right with God must be really hard because relationships are hard. It's kind of what happened here with the Galatian church. Look, Paul is not, is not cursing those outside the church as he talks about being under the law and being under a curse. He's talking about those who are within the church. He's aiming at those who would diminish grace and cultivate pride, supposing somehow that they can gain God's favor by doing right. You know, if I had to sum it up in just a, a few words, I would say one of Paul's biggest arguments here is it's just as important to be who you are as it is to do what we're called to do. I think that that's, that sums up in some ways what Paul is, is introducing us to here this morning. Many of us don't see the problem uh, with that, you know, uh, being right with God. Uh, it just, we just got to work harder. We've just got to be more faithful. We've just got to be better people. We've just got to put that sin behind us. And we've got to atone for our sin in some way. We want to improve our church attendance. 
We want to we want to give more. We want to profess right doctrine. We want to uh, be more faithful at praying before our meals. We want to read our Bibles more regularly. We want to avoid gross sins and the like. The Galatians, you see, are running with the ball, and they're trying to score points in a helter-skelter frenzy by doing the right thing. And Paul, all of a sudden, sounds the buzzer. He, he goes, eh, that doesn't work. Stop it. Blessing isn't for those who live in self-reliance, commit to self-reformation, or adopt some other means of self-atonement. Blessing is for those who confess radical neediness, whose pride has been crucified, whose lives are dependent upon Christ and his Holy Spirit. I want you to think about that. In fact, I think it would be wise for you to jot that down. Because sometimes we just need to, we need that post-it note on our refrigerator doors or on the dashboard or somewhere where we will see it often enough. Trying to earn God's favor brings a curse. Faith in Christ crucified brings the blessing of eternal life and gives us the promised Holy Spirit too gives us all the covenant promises that God made to Abraham. It's counterintuitive, but it's free. And so this morning, let's dig into Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. Let's really let Paul's words penetrate our hearts. The first, my first point, I, I have three points. I've already had a poem, so it's a good Presbyterian sermon. Three points and a poem, or maybe a poem and three points. How about that? Relying on works. Let's talk about what it means to rely on works. I mean, I, you, you guys know what this means, don't you? Here in our passage, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. All right. Is there any part of that verse that you don't understand? I mean, could Paul be any more clear to us than that? Breaking God's law in any way is to fall under the curse. Under the curse of God. That curse is actually spelled out in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy. It's spelled out in Deuteronomy chapter 27. In fact, it's a pretty important uh, chapter there. Israel is about to enter the promised land. They have, they have come through the wilderness wanderings, and, and they are set up on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And the reading of the law is taking place. And God pronounces the blessings and the curses of um, the uh, covenant. It's, it's Deuteronomy 27. I think it starts in about, uh, well, the, the, about the middle of the chapter. And God recounts 12 curses there. And the people, it's kind of an antiphonal thing. The people are supposed to respond with amen and, you know, th that we, uh, we commit to that 100%. To be under the law is to be bound and kept and to keep it for righteousness' sake. You know, if we seek to be made right with God by doing the right things, you know what the passing grade is. 
It's better than Matt's grade in, in Greek. It's 100%. It's, 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 an, it's 100% all the time. Look, look at what he says. Cursed is everyone who does not by, abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Not just know them, do them. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all, James says. He's got it. He understands. You know, it's, it's kind of like next time you run a red light, policeman pulls you over, you know, the flashing blue lights, the whole nine yards. Policeman pulls you over, and uh, you, you roll down your window, and you say, but officer, I was doing the speed limit when I passed through. Wasn't speeding. Hey, uh, I, I've got my driver's license, and I've got my registration. My insurance is up to date. All my paperwork is right here for you. See, I, I've got my seatbelt on. Surely that counts for something, right? What's the cop going to say to you? No dice. Not today, big boy. The broken law doesn't let you off the hook, and that's the curse. There's some really important background here with Gerizim and Ebal. Deuteronomy 27, those 12 curses. And if you want to read the expansion of that, you can read about that in, in chapter 28. Um, but uh, chapter 28 uh, expands it in such a way that, I, I just want to say, you probably should have a good breakfast under your belt when you read chapter 28, okay? The long story is short, uh, it expands what it means to be under the curse. It's not a pretty thing. To be under the curse is to be, be under the inescapable wrath of God. No area of relational harmony is left untouched. Okay, that's pretty much the truth of the matter here. In fact, the, to the effect that Paul says to the Galatians, that's where the, the false teachers are leading you. The, what the false teachers are doing is saying, Galatians, if you want to be really good Christians, you've got to be under the law. You've got to keep all the law. You've got to obey all the rules. You've got to abide by the commandments. You've got to live by the, the Mishnah, the, the added laws that they've added to the Old Testament. You've got to live under the law in such a way. It's like returning to the prison facility that you've been freed from, Paul says. Don't go back there. Paul argues, he's, he's saying legalism, depending upon your morals, upon your religion to gain favor with God will not work. It will not keep you in God's favor. It will not gain God's favor. Legalism is a misuse of the law. When Moses received the law, he wasn't given it like a ladder to climb to God. You know, the Ten Commandments aren't like, okay, we're going to start at, at Commandment 1 and 2, 3, 4. We're, we're not going to climb closer to heaven. So Paul is saying to these believers in Galatia, he's going, danger, danger, danger. Be aware of what's going on here. Living only by the law isn't gaining merit. It's a death sentence. You know, the law itself actually condemns trying to keep the law as a means of salvation. In the book of Habakkuk, 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 there, there are, in, verse two, in chapter 2, verse 14, 
there are some very famous words, very important words to a good Presbyterian or to a good Lutheran. And they were the words that Martin Luther read and that turned his heart uh, away from a, a slavish um, conviction that he could do all these things and earn his way to heaven. Remember, he was praying up the Lateran steps uh, to uh, earn merit so that he would be secure in his faith and that kind of thing. In Habakkuk chapter 2, I said 14, I mean verse 4. In Habakkuk chapter 2, there's this dialogue that's going on between Habakkuk and God. And, and they're, they're discussing, they're dialoguing over this perplexing issue for Habakkuk. Habakkuk uh, uh, is, is seeing the pride and the self-confidence of the Babylonians who have conquered Jerusalem. How they are trusting themselves and how they're not trusting God and how, and how God has let them prosper at the, God's people's expense. And so he's wrestling through that. And, and, and 2.4 reads this way. Behold, talking to Babylon, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The Jews were struggling. How do the ungodly nation of the Babylonians, how do they conquer us? Centuries later, when Martin Luther was reading those words, God opened his eyes. And the Protestant Reformation actually began at that point. We don't live by the law. We live by grace. Paul is writing to the church at Galatia about grace and law issues. So I was thinking about that, and, and I was thinking, okay, we in the church struggle with being law keepers and being, wanting to earn our salvation or wanting to maintain our salvation by being obedient and keeping the law. And I am not saying that, that once you're a Christian you can just live like you want. That's not at all what I'm saying, and that's certainly not what Paul's saying, okay? But I'm thinking about that this week, and, and as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking, okay, that's good for us in the church to hear. But, but how does that, how do we make that a part of the gospel? How do we make, how do we make that truth uh, something that, that brings the gospel to bear in our world? You know, how do we take that into our daily lives and live like those who have been transformed by grace? What about the way the non-believing world thinks about the virtuous life? Your friends who aren't believers. How do they think they're going to be right with God? How do they think they can, they can transform themselves and, or be sure that they will go to heaven? What does the world think? How, how, does, how does all this kind of work together? Is it by being good? Is it by, you know, balancing out? Is it by keeping, being moral? Is it, you know, by somehow meriting by, you know, sin, good works, moral lies, all, all that? I opened with that statement that I said you ought to write down. Blessing isn't for those who live in self-reliance, who commit to self-reformation, or who adopt some other means of self-atonement. Blessing is for those who confess radical neediness, whose pride has been crucified, and whose lives are dependent upon Christ and his spirit. 
I wonder if our society today, okay, and I'm just thinking out loud with you, I wonder if our society today hasn't shifted somewhat and has not begun to value, maybe, maybe begun's not even the right word, if our society doesn't value human autonomy and individualism more than they value anything else. And human autonomy and individualism uh, stands above every other virtue in our world today. So I was chewing on that, I think it was Thursday, Friday maybe, I don't remember. I was, I was thinking about that. And I was, I was wrestling with that idea. The abortion industry, pro-choice movement, they thrive on those values, don't they? Human autonomy and individualism possess uh, uh, ultimate importance, the termination of a human life and the, phys- and the psychological harm done to women are secondary to the point that they barely even enter the conversation when they talk about abortion. There's an illustration. At the risk of oversimplification, I think understanding the nature and the danger of elevating human autonomy as a starting place uh, for understanding our worldview that we live in today, I think understanding that that is what our world values in opposition to grace-filled Christianity is one of the keys to speaking to our culture today. Human autonomy and individual um, individualism basically are the key. Listen to the radio. Think about the music of our world today. So many songs. Think about the moral of the movies that you watch. Think about the principles of so many causes and think about the the promises of so many political campaigns. It is an unequivocal appeal to individualism. Isn't that antithetical? Isn't that opposed to what Paul is saying here in the gospel? As he talks about the gospel and the righteous living by faith in the Lord Jesus and the accomplished work of Christ and not by our own merit. You can boil down the morality and the ethics of Western society, I think, into into one single cliche. Be true to yourself. Here's how the way it comes out on the college campus this day. It says, uh, you do you. Have you heard it? Be true to yourself. You belong to yourself. You're the captain of your own ship. You determine what values, what ethics, what identity, what spiritual beliefs are right for yourself. Whatever rules you establish are fine, so long as they do not infringe uh, upon or condemn someone else's human autonomy or inflict violence on somebody else. The John 3.16 of our world today is you do you. One person may not want to engage in random hookups, but if that's what you want to do, hey, you do you. Smoking pot may not work for one person, but if it works for another, then you do you. That cliche basically 
functionally affirms and blesses human autonomy. You do you. Beneath those beliefs is a a belief, a, a residing idea in the sovereignty of the individual. That is so antithetical to what the scriptures teach. It's not even funny. You know, the world would teach us that we're all our own little worlds coexisting alongside the world of others, that we govern our world according to the personal taste and preferences that we have. All of this basically means that we are residing on our own works to justify ourselves. I think Paul addresses the fallacy of that idea here. Living by the law cannot lead to reliance on Christ. The law is not a faith, Paul says in Galatians 3.12. We need to cry out for God's mercy. We need to cast ourselves on his love. So what hope is there for those who have dishonored God by, by trying to win him over with their virtue? by being true to themselves or by keeping the rules or by some other uh, meritorious work that they might choose to do? What, what, What hope is there? What does Isaiah say? Isaiah announces the gospel, the good news. He says, all of us like sheep have wandered away, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Do you hear it? human autonomy, yet the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53, 6. Paul says it this way in our text here. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. My second point this morning is the whole idea that we have been redeemed from the curse. Christ became a scandal for you and for me. Do you realize what that means? God the Son became accursed. Even more than that, he became the curse. He embodied in his own death the horrendous wrath that we were due for our sin. No wonder a crucified Messiah was unimaginable for the Jews who heard Paul preach. How could Messiah hang on a tree? How could Messiah become accursed? He's under the wrath of God. He's he's enduring the, the, the punishment of God. His estrangement from God is clear. You see, in the Old Testament, uh, uh, being hung on a tree was evidence that you had been cursed by God. Jesus if he was hung on the cross, must have become the object of the law's curse. Do you see what Jesus has done for you? Surely God's chosen servant wouldn't suffer that kind of fate. He couldn't be the Messiah if that's the case. The consequences of covenant transgression were terrifying. And if you read the Deuteronomy 27 and 28 passage, you'll get a glimpse of that. Jews 
didn't understand how Jesus could hang on the tree and still be Messiah. Jesus' cry of forsakenness as he, as he hung on the cross is really a window into the suffering that Jesus endured. And I'm not just talking about the physical, horrendous suffering that he endured on the cross. The, the physical crucifixion, crucifixion is not the real issue. It's brutal. It's barbaric. But the spiritual dimensions are unfathomable. The, the emotional and, and the mental part of that is, is inconceivable. Jesus entered hell. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The second person of the Trinity cries out from the cross. He experienced in himself the pangs of death, the torment of banishment from God, while hanging there, becoming accursed for us. And yet he was without sin. In the one small space of his human frame, in the, the few, do I dare call them short hours of his crucifixion, he faced shocks of unimaginable proportion. He faced the cosmic wrath of God for your sin and my sin. That he might reconcile our relationship with our Heavenly Father. In his experience, the curse was unmitigated, completely final, all-encompassing. It was, it was total. The Old Testament curses in Old Testament scriptures touch the deepest abyss of human fears. When you read the Deuteronomy passage, just one illustration of that. The, the famine, infanticide, insanity, um, plagues, depression, uh, disposition, uh, dispossession, um, terrorization, slavery, all of it, Christ experienced all the emotional and mental anguish of, of those horrors on a cosmic scale. He became the totality of sin. What does 2 Corinthians uh, 5.21 says? It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Lamb of God bore the sins of the world. Jesus went to the cross not because he was cursed under the law, for he had kept it perfectly, but because we were. He went to the cross because we were cursed. He hung on that tree. He endured all of that because we were under the curse. Luther calls that the fortunate exchange. Indeed. The relational intimacy that you and I crave in the deepest part of our being with our human relationships is only a shadow 
of that big void that's in the life of those who are not in a reconciled relationship with their Heavenly Father. When your friends and your family members and your co-workers disappoint you in a relationship, when they fail you and you feel the sting of that betrayal, it's only, a, it's only shadowing the, the kind of sting that we ought to feel if we're not in relationship with our Heavenly Father. It's only a shadow of the emptiness that's in our lives if we don't know the Savior. Relational intimacy that we crave for with the Lord is not found by doing better. It's not found by trying harder. It's not try, by, by being nicer. It's, not, it, it's wholly a matter of grace in which the Father embraces us through the Son's work on our behalf. It is not something that we do. It is only of grace. Faith simply trusts the, word, the Father's word that in Jesus Christ it is finished. And the Spirit who, who moves in our heart is the one who, who prompts us to cry out, Abba, Father, and enter into that father-son, father-daughter relationship with you through faith in Christ. The Spirit's given us a pledge and a seal that it's all true. Last point of the sermon this morning. Christ has purchased the benefits of the covenant. Look carefully at the text there, verse 14 especially. In verse 14, Paul speaks positively about the covenant benefits that Christ has purchased for his people. He, 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 in order that Christ Jesus, the blessing, that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In verse 14, Paul has a, a purpose clause. He basically has two purpose clauses here. Uh, one shows the negative work of redemption, and one shows the positive work of redemption. That's what Paul is doing here technically. The negative side of redemption, Jesus satisfies the curse. He's become a curse for us. He's satisfied the demands of the law so that we don't have to. And on the positive side of the work of redemption, he has purchased for us the blessings of the covenant. Now, David talked about Abraham and uh, Abraham's uh, uh, in, uh, covenant uh, promises from God in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 last week and did a great job with that. Paul expands that idea here a little bit, kind of capstones that idea here when he talks about that. Paul teaches that, that it was God's intention to purchase for sinners the benefits of the covenant that he made with Abraham. That in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Not just to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles. When Adam sinned, he not only exposed us to the justice and anger of God, he forfeited our inheritance and our face-to-face -face relationship with our Father. God threw him out of the garden. God made a promise to Abraham in the covenant in Genesis 12, 
Genesis 15 and 17, that he would make him the father of many nations. That there would be many who would, who would come to have faith just like Abraham would. That his descendants would be like the, the stars of the sky, like the sand of the sea. And he also promised a land, an inheritance, a place to be. It's a shadow of the promise of eternal life and heaven with Jesus Christ. The blessing of Abraham is a twofold promise the remission of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. God pictures that promise for Abraham uh, and for the old covenant community by the inheritance of the land. The fulfillment of that inheritance belongs to all of the seed of Abraham, Jews and Gentiles alike. Christ, by his work of redemption, purchased that blessing for all his people. So by his work, you and I become heirs with Abraham and with Abraham's people. Pretty cool. We get engrafted. We get adopted. We get drawn into the family of Christ. whole doctrine of adoption is wrapped up in this passage as well as everything else we've talked about so far this morning. Didn't even choose to talk about that today. This verse contains two purpose clauses. In order that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, and in order that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Both of those purpose clauses relate to the work of Christ. Paul's teaching us here that believers receive the promise of the Holy Spirit by faith. So that in Christ, not only do we receive the blessing and the inheritance of Abraham, the remission of our sin, but we also are guaranteed that by the gift of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given as a guarantee. He's the guarantee that God gives to assure us that, that we have received all of these promises and we didn't work for it. We didn't initiate it. Because it's the Spirit who enters our lives and our hearts before we ever trust Christ. It's the Spirit who gives us the Spirit to trust Christ. You can't earn that. You can't merit that. It's a beautiful gift. It's only in the New Covenant that believers receive the Spirit in full measure because he's been given by the glorified Christ, too. You understand that? Let your theology work a little bit this morning. The Spirit of Christ dwells in every believer today as fully and as completely as he indwelt the, uh, a few people, like the prophets and the priests and the kings in the Old Covenant. That's what Joel means when he says that when the Spirit comes all will prophesy and have visions, Joel 2, 28 and 29. The New Testament believer has a spirit in exactly the same way that the prophets of the Old Covenant had the Holy Spirit. What a blessing. What a promise that is. In this age, every son and daughter of God has the spirit, which is... Why, even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist, who was the greatest of all of the Old Testament prophets. Let that click. You have more work of the Spirit in your life. You have more of the Holy Spirit than John the Baptist 
because Jesus became a curse for you. Because Jesus purchased your redemption. How does anybody receive the Spirit? How does it happen? It's by faith. All the blessings could never come by human autonomy, by meritorious work, by keeping the law. And so Paul says, all who keep the law are under a curse. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by everything written in the book of the law and do them. The righteous shall live by faith. The law is not faith. We receive all these things by faith in the crucified Christ. Through the old cursed cross we receive the promised Holy Spirit. Through the old cursed cross, the nations of the world receive forgiveness for their sins. Through the old cursed cross, our relationship, our most important and deepest relationship is reconciled. Do you see what it means that Jesus became a curse for you by hanging on a tree. I'm going to close this morning, and I'm just going to encourage you, if you've never received Jesus as your Savior, if you've never trusted Him for your salvation, then today's the day. Don't let this moment pass you. Don't let this time slip by. Jesus has made the great exchange. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the good news of the gospel, for the fact that you have called us to be your very own sons and daughters, that you have given us the twofold promise that, that we are indeed forgiven and given the Spirit as in our inheritance. Help us to live in light of the gospel in relationships, knowing that our earthly relationships ought to imitate our heavenly relationship. O oh Lord Jesus, let your word dwell richly in us today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.